Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Uh, you can be turning in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Um, thank you for the kind introduction. All those things were true. Um, it's been a joy to stay in touch with the, with the mans. What they didn't mention uh, was, yes, we attended the same church, um, uh, and yes, the, the same seminary, uh, but they, they were, uh, we, we joined your gospel community group uh, really quickly. Um, so it's what our church called uh, the small group ministry, and we actually lived maybe five doors away from each other in the same little apartment complex. And so whatever that proverb is about don't let your foot hit your neighbor's doorstep too often, they never taught us that proverb. And so as a consequence, we were over at their place most nights of the week. And it was just such a a joy to receive that life-on-life discipleship. And uh, my wife, Jenna, and I can uh, really number the days since the uh, first day we met the Mayans of how God was kind to use them um, to form us more into the image of Christ, especially through their uh, hospitality. And by these little touches that Brian was talking about, that, that is more in the form of I'm always visiting them and enjoying their hospitality. I don't think you all have ever stayed with us, um, but I'm always staying with you, uh, whether it was in Louisville, Clemson, New England, um, and it's honestly for the sake of my joy. And it's, uh, it's not lost on me as we're about to read in First Thessalonians, um, this uh, chain of events where uh, some Christians become imitators of more mature Christians who themselves were imitators of more mature Christians, and that's just the life of a Christian, of, of patterning that kind of discipleship. And so uh, to the glory of God, we've become imitators of the man's, and we're just so sincerely thankful for, for you all. Uh, without further ado, let's look at 1 Thessalonians. My verses are going to be in particular verses 6 through 8 in chapter 1, but I'm just going to read the whole chapter um, because I think it's just wonderful. So here's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you. And peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only... Has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia? But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, 
so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report, uh, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, I come before you in the name of your Son. We praise you for how you have revealed yourself in your word to us. We praise you for this example of the believers in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago. Their reputation spread to Macedonia and Achaia and now the Clemson of how they believed in Jesus amidst affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I pray that we also would suffer well in the joy of the Holy Spirit in a way that encourages saints all around the world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when Pastor Brian asked me to uh, consider preaching for, the, uh, for your missions week, and he had told me that Chad Ashby, who's also a friend and lived in our same apartment complex, was preaching, I just... His wisdom was revealed to me because Chad is preaching after me. And so that's just a tough act to follow. And so I'm glad that we're stair-stepping the, the preachers. And so wisdom upon wisdom, my friend. Thank you for that. Um, Chad, Chad's a friend. And I, I love talking about missions. Um, I have never been a mid- or long-term missionary, but I have a lot of exposure to missions. Uh, I pastored for, for five years. We, sh- we supported uh, missionaries. I've gone on a few short-term mission trips, um, primarily th- uh, in an effort of global theological education, where I'll go for one or two weeks to Togo or to Haiti, and I will um, train, I'll put on a class uh, for indigenous pastors. So it's, it's just a very helpful, organic way to equip and empower faithful men who are already laboring in that culture, already know that language, and I'm just equipping them with the tools that we are really thankful to have received from a place like Southern Seminary, but even just fundamentals of biblical interpretation um, or Old Testament theology. And so that's just been a privilege of mine. And I've had a lot of exposure to a lot of other international countries. This is my 18th year in the Army. I just finished a duty station in Germany. I'm dressed in some German uh, flair right now. Uh, um, uh, Jenny dared me to wear the leader hose in like leather shorts, but y'all aren't rare for that. Maybe next time. Um, but uh, during that 30-month assignment in Germany uh, that my family and I just finished, I got to visit 33 new countries, uh, which was a blast. And it's interesting, uh, I, was with, uh, I was the chaplain for a logistics unit, and we would have soldiers go out on shorter-term like missions, like four or five weeks, and just like different sustainment logistics nodes all throughout Europe and Africa to support ongoing missions for U.S. forces there. And uh, one of those missions, I had a bunch of cooks uh, go down to a port in Greece in a town called Thessalonica. Uh, It was great. There was an aviation unit that was coming in from Kansas, and they are going to do a nine-month rotation in Europe. And so as they're offloading the Chinooks and the Apaches and the Black Hawk helicopters, those pilots need to eat, and pilots love to eat. Trust me on that. And so my soldiers were there, and it was part of my job as a chaplain to circulate to all these different sites and uh, provide religious support. 
pray with people, counsel, preach, those sorts of things. One of my non-commissioned officers, when I was visiting them in Thessalonica, is actually just this past April, she asked me, she said, Chaplain, I have a lot of free time here. Uh, I want to get back into reading my Bible. Where do you recommend I start? And by the way, if you ever want to make your pastors happy, just ask them, like, where should I start reading in the Bible? Like, we just love talking about We have so many ideas about that. But in this case, I, I suggested, I was like, well, you are in, in Thessalonica. And like I was saying, like, it's so obvious. But she just gave me kind of like a blank, like, stare. I'm like, do you not know the biblical significance of Thessalonica? She's like, nope. I was like, well, here we go. And I just, I opened up First Thessalonians, and it's, it's so rich and helpful and very easy to present the gospel from First Thessalonians. So while the other cooks were standing around, I was just opening up First Thessalonians. It's, this is your tax dollars at work, by the way. Like, you're paying me as an army chaplain to share the gospel with soldiers. So thank you for that. Um, and so uh, I, when, when I was asked to talk about uh, global expressions of faithfulness in the Great Commission in the context of the local church, I really honed in on this text. Let me read verses 6 through 8 again to kind of dial it in for us. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So 2,000 years ago, Greece was split up into Macedonia and Achaia. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. And so he's speaking, hey, your reputation of how you have come to faith in Jesus, turned away from idols, believing in the one living and true God, and you've been opposed by that faith or in that faith from your countrymen, that reputation has really spread like wildfire in such a way that it's really encouraged all the saints in all these new church plants that Paul and his entourage were supporting, were planting. And that's just such a joy. And so there's, there's this function of healthy churches export what they already are, which is why, especially, it's just heartbreaking when I, when I travel and I see so many international churches who have a direct export of American Christianity, what they get is not healthy Christianity. It's not even Christianity at all. I mean, oftentimes it's health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And, and so to talk about the local church, and to talk about missions, really, biblically speaking, is not two separate subjects for a lot of reasons. But one of them is, what are we sending to the nations is what we already are here. If we're not healthy here, we're not going to be healthy there. How could we? And so it's such a joy to speak to a local church from the word about how this early church exported the gospel to the nations. Their faith was everywhere because they were so healthy in how they believed in God, followed Jesus, waited for Jesus, even and especially when times got tough. So I want to overview what's going on in that text, maybe draw some parallels between that church and this church, and then give you some practical ideas of what to do with this. So that's my structure. That's where I'm going with this this morning. 
And I have to say, as I was doing my homework on the mount, I got to believe, and I didn't ask Pastor Brian this, so I can just speculate, that when you came up with your vision and missions, I think you must have had 1 Thessalonians open in front of you. We, the Mount Church, exist to display the glory of God's grace in Jesus Christ by proclaiming him to all peoples for their everlasting joy in God. And one of your mission statements is you are treasuring Christ, cultivating his community, and embracing his commission. It just sounds really biblical. Like, I, I approve. Um, and so that's great. I, I love critiquing churches on that. I love, as a side note, I love going to people's libraries and critiquing the books that they have on their shelves, especially like their theological libraries. And let me just say, your pastors passed the sniff test. I approve of the books that they have. And that's no small thing. Um, that... I think that your mission and vision of your church is perfectly aligned with, with the Bible. And so I'm, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir in, in a good way. And so join with me as, as we look more at what's going on here. And by the way, I love just looking at the context of what's going on. Before we dive into 1 Thessalonians 1, will you turn with me to Acts chapter 17? And we're going to see how Paul initially preached the gospel and how it took root in this church um, before 1 Thessalonians was written. So, Acts chapter 17, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. This is part, part of one of Paul's missionary journeys, um, and he, we're going to talk about, and I want you to notice especially how the response of the society to these people saying Jesus is king wasn't warm and fuzzy. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Now, when they had passed through and Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did, a mate, uh, excuse me, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed, and they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, while not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come as soon as possible, they departed. 
Okay, I'm flipping back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I just love the, the history. It really lays the foundation. gives us some, some situational awareness. So let me start big picture now that the, the scene has been set. God has revealed himself to us. When we're talking about missions, the most important thing to talk about is who God is, the character of God, theology proper. We're talking about God as Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God has revealed himself as holy, 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 worthy of all honor and praise. He creates us to praise his glory. And he created everything good in relationship with him. And yet, sin entered the world because Adam and Eve sinned. They disobeyed God. They had one job, they couldn't do it. And the unfortunate thing is, sin cannot be tolerated in God's presence. That's a good thing, but what that means is it fractured the relationship between God and man. Adam and Eve, our forebearers, were cast out of the Garden of Eden, cut off from access to the tree of life. Death entered the world through sin. And ever since then, God has set out this mission to recover what's been lost for the sake of his name. In fact, that plan didn't just start in Genesis 3. We read elsewhere what Paul writes, this was always the plan before the ages began. But it's interesting to see the development of how that plan unfolded. Here's what I mean by that. God sought to reconcile a fallen humanity, which is all of us because we inherit the sin nature of Adam and Eve, and we actually sin. We are separated from God. But God sought to redeem that by choosing a particular people the Jews, Israel. He said, you're my chosen people and I want you to be, listen to this phrase, a light to the nations. You will behave and worship in such a way that you are set apart, you're going to stand out, people are going to come and see the glory of God on display locatively. That is a location in a people in Jerusalem, in Israel. Unfortunately, spoiler alert, Israel isn't a light to the nations. In fact, they become like the nations that they were supposed to be reaching. And so in the fullness of time, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. That's good news. Jesus is the true Israel. He's the true descendant of God and man. He's fully God. He's fully man. He lives a perfect life. And he puts on display God's radiance to the nations. He is the light to the nations. He accomplishes this salvation through suffering. And we already know why. Because as we've discussed, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. So as Jesus is perfectly fulfilling everything in the Old Testament, the storylines, the prophecies, even the sacrificial system... Jesus had to die as a substitute on the cross if our sins were to be properly dealt with, if God's justice was to be satisfied. I'm not just going off script in 1 Thessalonians. It's actually in here. Even like that last verse, uh, chapter, or sorry, verse 10. We're waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers from the wrath to come. You see, in the army, we talk a lot about expectation management really helpful. Can I just give expectation management? If you're not a believer, 
if you are not waiting on Jesus, if you haven't placed your faith in Him, here's what you can expect. There is wrath coming for you. Because that's all of us. We, we all deserve God's wrath. We deserve the death penalty for our sin, but Jesus has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He's perfectly atoned for our sin. God the Father crushed His Son under His wrath in our place. And that's the good news. Sin is dealt with, it is finished, and He didn't stay in the grave. He was raised on the third day by the power of God the Father through the Holy Spirit, raised victorious over Satan, over sin, over death. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. There's still wrath coming for anyone who has not repented of their sin and trusted by faith in Christ alone. There still remains a reckoning. And you better believe God will make sure it's paid. Jesus will rescue you, though, from the wrath that is to come. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. Jesus came to save you. So if you're not a Christian this morning, why wouldn't you? Accept this free offer of salvation. Turn away from your sin. Embrace Christ by faith alone. That's what the Bible is about to the glory of God. And here's what's interesting. That moment represents a fulcrum in world history, namely the person and work of Christ coming to earth. When Jesus did that, he gives the Great Commission. He says, go make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that God commanded. But as Ed Clowney, an author, points out, before the Great Commission, there was the Great Constitution. So you read in Matthew 16, you read in Matthew 18, God forms the local church. This is His new covenant people, local churches, to be what Christ is to the world, namely a light to the nations, this compelling community. Come and see God's work among a people, but it doesn't just stay, come and see. The Great Commission says, go and tell. I checked my math before this, literally. The, the analogy is, in the Old Covenant mission, it was, it was a come and see like centripetal force. You know, like if you, if you stir like glass water, you like spin it, the, the force generates into a central focal point. But then a transition happens in the new covenant. It is still come and see. That's what a local church is. But now it's also go and tell. It becomes centrifugal. Think of that Olympic event where it's, it's the hammer throw, you're spinning around and around, or it's, it's the shot puts. I'm not going to spin all the way around. I, I, I lose my balance. And then it's launched. It's the, the force is generated outwards. That's where we are in redemptive history. It's go through the means of the local church because that's what we see in the New Testament. In fact, if you read how the disciples received that commission and obeyed it, Jesus gives final instructions in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, don't do it yet. You need the Holy Spirit. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses, where? In Jerusalem, all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. 
You see these uh, ever-expanding and widening concentric circles of influence and mission. Where does the end of the earth, what does that mean? In part, Clemson, South Carolina. Isn't it interesting? The mount is not ground zero for the Great Commission. America isn't ground zero. It's Judea. It's Jesus. He's ground zero. He's God's missionary. He's God in the flesh. And he's revealed himself as, I'm missional. And if you're going to follow me, you'll be missional through the local church. It's all church-driven. Not only do we receive those instructions very clearly, prescriptively in the New Testament, but descriptively. If you want to read good missionary biographies, just read the book of Acts. This is how the, the gospel of Jesus spread, was through the means of the local church and churches planting churches. That's God's plan for missions. It's the local church. Local church here, local church in Dubai, local church in Stuttgart. This is God's plan. His special set-apart people, changed by His grace, very obviously in the eyes of a watching world just like the Thessalonians, who turned from idols to serve the living and true God in such a way that it's clear Jesus is their king and not the idols of their culture. And it wasn't just the Greeks who had idols. Friends, Clemson has idols. You grew up worshiping idols. May not have been... um, Goodness gracious, a decapitated head um, after a funeral. That, that, was, that was fascinating, but still just as grossly sinful, whether it's family or success or another degree or stability or nationalism. You could take even good things, try to worship them, make them God things. That's an idol. Anything other than God where we find our identity, our security, our value, The kingdom of God is opposed to worshiping such things. Instead, it views them as means to the end. I want to use whatever thing God has given me to his glory, including suffering, including death. Death is ours in Christ Jesus. It's interesting. We read about Jason in Acts 17. I doubt that any one of you have been dragged out in front of the people and accused because you're following Jesus, you're calling Jesus king. That's in large part, a blessing of God that we live in a country where we have freedom of religion. Praise God for that. But it doesn't mean that the Christian life is just altogether easy and it's without cost. Jenny was helpful in helping me think through this last night. Living a truly gospel-saturated life really is inconvenient. Really pursuing reconciliation and forgiveness for a brother or sister in Christ who's offended you or vice versa opening up your homes and practicing hospitality, embracing God's plan for a family. These these can be viewed as inconveniences, but what joys they are compared to the surpassing worth that we have in Christ. The Christian life gladly embraces setbacks and difficulties and even especially persecution because that's that's how the gospel was purchased in the first place. Let me point that out to you. First of all, in Acts 17.3, you remember Paul told the church in Thessalonica that the Christ had to suffer these things in order to accomplish the gospel. Um, You you see what he's highlighting in 1 Thessalonians 1 
is that they received, here, read with me in verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is how the gospel is accomplished. Namely, through suffering. And actually you're seeing in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2, four generations of discipleship suffering. Generation 1 is Jesus. Jesus accomplishes the gospel not in spite of suffering, but through suffering, by dying on the cross. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, they're imitators of Jesus. And so that's a second generation where they spread the gospel through a suffering apostolic ministry. Let me catch you here. The third generation isn't necessarily the Thessalonians. Read with me in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. This will blow your mind. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same thing from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Isn't that interesting? The believers in Judea, that was third gen. And now the, uh, the believers in Thessalonica, they're imitating the Jews in Judea as they suffer well out of reverence for Christ. And actually, you could say there's a fifth generation here because the church in Thessalonica, their faith has gone forth everywhere. They're encouraging churches before Paul and Silas even get there. The reputation has preceded them. The reputation that these believers received Paul and in, in turn, Christ, they endured through persecution with the joy of the Holy Spirit. There's a joyful response to persecution for true Christians. That's a supernatural thing. That is God-given. And they persevere in the faith, still waiting for Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So really, there's, you could say there's five generations. And you see how it just builds, and it goes further and wider geographically. To the point where, fast forward to 1861, through that chain of events, this church is planted. Multi-ethnically. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. But that's the pattern. That's how God spreads the gospel for the sake of his name and the joy of the nations is through churches planting churches. It's local churches. It's not us all doing our individual things. I love parachurch ministries, but they must be biblically subordinated to the local church. And what a joy that is. I think you're already seeing, here's what's happening in the text. Here's parallels between those believers in Thessalonica and the Mount Church. I would even say, this is good news even as we rehearse it in our testimonies. Uh, I'm reminded of 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul really drills down how we obtain salvation. He says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. And so, as Paul is speaking to a local church, full of believers that were bought, paid for, sealed with, by the gospel, by the blood of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I just think that there's a lot of parallels between you and the believers in Thessalonica. I really do. First, it's just true of every Christian that we, didn't, we weren't born Christians. No one's born a child of God. Not, not in the Bible. We're born children of wrath. We're destined for wrath. But what happened? It's interesting. If you look back in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, this is what happened to these Christians in Thessalonica. It's also what happened to you and me. For we know, brothers, loved by God, He's chosen you. That's what happens first. Have you thought about this, Christian? You were chosen by God, just like these believers 2,000 years ago. You, you didn't choose God. You were fleeing from God. But He chose you, of all people. He chose you, and He gave you love and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. How? Well, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Did you go to the gospel? Or did the gospel come to you? I wasn't going to mention that, but last night, Pastor Brian was like, he, he emphasized, he's like, did you notice that it says, our gospel came to you? I was like, yes, I didn't. Um, your, your, your pastor pointed that out, so, so kudos to Brian. The gospel came to us. When we were not receptive, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were very comfortable in our own self-righteousness. But the gospel came to us. God didn't wait on us. He chose us. The gospel came to us, purchased by the blood of Jesus, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Think about the kindness of whoever it was that shared the gospel with you. Who was that for you? Parent, teacher, pastor, Sunday school teacher, sister. How kind that they would share the gospel with you and that someone had shared the gospel with them. And you see, you go back more and more generations, all the way back to Christ, who came to bring the gospel near to us, didn't wait for us to go up the mountain to him. He came down, stooped low, lived a life that we should have lied, died the death we should have died, raises from the grave so that we too will be resurrected bodily. He gives you free salvation and tells other people, go and make disciples, making disciples to all nations. That's good news. We're very similar to the Christians in Thessalonica because people have been faithful to obey the Great Commission to take the gospel to the nations. I wonder, how often do you think about the fate of the unevangelized? How often do you think about the fate of the unevangelized? I have a lot of these kind of conversations um, in chaplaincy. I, I, I work with a lot of people who wear the chaplain cross, but they're not actually 
Christians, in my opinion, um, because they don't care for Christ. They don't care to preach the gospel. Um, they, uh, they really have a, a philosophy of ministry of we don't want to intrude on people's consciences. We don't want to possibly offend anyone by sharing the gospel with them. Um, we have to be very tactful uh, in a way that they never actually share the gospel. And, I, and before you, I start debating with them about whether or not that's true, I think there's an underlying supposition that we, we actually need to discuss that as a root before we talk about the fruit of your ministry. I, and I ask them, what happens to the unevangelized? Really, what happens? And unsurprisingly, the people who never share the gospel, they don't believe that there is a hell, that there is wrath coming for everyone. I guess I can't be that upset at them. If you don't believe there's hell, why would you evangelize? What's the point? Why risk the, at minimum, the social awkwardness, possibly, of sharing the gospel, and at worst, being killed for sharing the gospel? But can I just point out, this is not a matter of debate or opinion. The Bible has already talked about it. That there is wrath waiting for everyone who doesn't repent and believe in the gospel. And people who never hear the gospel cannot believe in the gospel that they have not heard. They remain under wrath. That's Romans chapter 1. That's Romans chapter 10. Trust me, the exegesis is sound. You can ask your pastors who know Greek better than I do. It's true. That's bad news. The good news isn't good news unless you square with the bad news. So believers at the Mount Church, why would you commit to missions and evangelism? There's a lot of reasons. But I wonder, have you thought about the pressing need that there are billions of people right now in our world who have no exposure to the gospel apart from you telling them or you supporting someone to go tell them they don't even have a chance to reject the gospel, much less believe in it. And they remain under God's wrath. Because deep down, everyone knows that there's a God who created me that I don't like. I'd rather be creator. I'd rather dethrone God and enthrone myself. I know deep down there's a God who's going to judge me for all my wickedness. And deep down, I hate him. That's everyone by nature. There's no such thing as a good person. We're all by nature sinners. But Jesus has died for a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He has chosen a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And all we have to do is go and tell, make disciples, share the good news that there is a ransom for their sins. There is a rescue for them in Christ Jesus. And they don't need to work one iota to earn it. There's no earning God's love. There's no meriting our place in heaven. The good news is so much better than that. This salvation is free because it was purchased in full with the finished work of Christ on the cross. And all we need to do is be faithful and share. That's good news. With that in mind, let me give you some practical ideas. I'll give you six for local church-driven missions. Six ideas of local church-driven missions. If nothing else, we should be so thankful for this opportunity to contribute to it because someone has been kind to us in sharing the gospel of what God has done for us. Let's pass that forward. Here's 
Six ideas. Number one, articulate your testimony with the gospel. Articulate your testimony with the gospel. Here's what I mean by that. I could imagine you're sitting there and you're kind of overwhelmed, like we're talking about biblical theology and Genesis to Revelation and heaven and hell. Like, where do I start? There's so many nations. Start small. Just be able to articulate how God saved you in a way that makes the gospel clearer. Here's why I say that. Because that's what Paul has done for the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1. Did you see how he talked about the particularities of their conversion and he made the gospel clear? Especially like verse 9. Here's a good example. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. There's a couple of really helpful turns of phrases where it's intertwined. How they converted and what God had done in order to enable them to convert. For you, I think it's really helpful for all of us. And your pastors can help you sift through this. How to even like write out your, your testimony ahead of time just to make it clear. To show, here's how God changed me in a way that makes the gospel of Jesus clear. These things of first importance of Jesus' incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the proper call to the gospel. The reason that's helpful is because if you ask someone, like, hey, can I share my story with you? In our culture, that's an easy yes. People are just not going to say no. And so, like, hey, do you mind if I share with you, like, what God has done for me? Or something that has changed my life? People are going to say yes. Golden opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus in a biblical way. That, that's how the saints in the New Testament did it. And, and that'll, that'll translate, whether it's in America or overseas. That's cross-cultural. That'll make you money. And it's just a good way of giving God glory for how he saved you. And so it's, it's a win either way. That's number one. Articulate your gospel, or articulate your testimony and how you tie it into the gospel. Uh, step number two, read missionary biographies. Read missionary biographies. Start with Acts. Acts is so rich, like jaw-dropping, oh my goodness, see how God is spreading the fame of his name to all nations. These were the first missionaries. Wonderful. I would also say there's a lot of contemporary missionaries, we'll say within the past 500 years, that it's so galvanizing, it's so catalyzing to read how God used imperfect people like me to share the gospel with people cross-culturally. And just to start forming those categories and seeing that precedence of God's faithfulness. Where I would recommend you start is a biography about Adoniram Judson titled To the Golden Shore. To the Golden Shore. Thick read, super worth it, changed my life, highly recommend it. How he took the gospel to Burma, modern-day Miramar. Read missionary biographies. This should be a regular part of your literary diet. Number three, third idea, go on a short-term mission trip under the supervision and authority of your local church. Go on a mission trip. 
There's more I could say about why that qualification, but your pastors can explain it to you more. But just getting exposed to the need in other nations, if nothing else, will help you pray for them in a more informed way, but just going for one week, two weeks, three weeks to the foreign mission field and partner with missionaries who are there right now will just help acquaint you with the landscape of, of missions. There's even like opportunities you can go on your website, uh, your, your missions website, imb.org. There's uh, dozens of short-term opportunities between uh, one week to 12 weeks during the summer specifically geared towards college students where you can just go and partner with missionaries in the south of France, in North Africa, in Southeast Asia, in South America, and you will add value to that missions effort and it'll give you exposure. And why wouldn't you? This is already set up for you. I'd also say there's a lot of opportunities nowadays with international churches. I was just talking with Bob about this. Um, in Singapore, like you said, there is a healthy English preaching church. For a lot of these countries, there's a lot of expats, people from other countries that come to, we'll say, United Arab Emirates or Singapore or Germany. And they come there for business or for education. And because there's so many different languages, they use English as a common denominator, which I find fascinating for a lot of reasons, but I'll table that right now. What that means, though, is you have the nations coming into these universities, into these towns. If you were to, as you're about to graduate from your undergrad or your grad program or something else, why not look to see if there are not job opportunities in these uh, foreign cities? Look for a healthy local church there and then support their disciple-making church planning efforts. Just really unique when you bring the nations in to this one city or this one university. If you can share the gospel with these people and disciple them and then export them back to their countries where they know the mother tongue, isn't that so much more efficient? And shouldn't we be that opportunistic? There are a lot of opportunities like that. Business as missions, short-term mission trips, finding jobs overseas, Take the gospel to the nations. Here's my fourth idea. Partner with a missionary team that you already have a relationship with, like the Hares. Go and visit them. Provide child care. Or maybe you have friends in college or from your local church growing up, and now they're missionaries on the mission field. We don't just want to send dollars to them, although let's send dollars to them, let's go, but also relationships. Go and be good gospel friends with them. Go on a regular yearly basis and just encourage these missionaries. That's what Paul did. He would always go back to like the church in Antioch and all these other churches and send letters, and he would have an ongoing meaningful relationship with missionaries. I encourage you to think about that. Pray, go, support. Here's my fifth idea, is pray for the nations hard to care about people you're not praying about. Pretty tough. But if you pray for them, then the Lord puts them on your heart, and actually God uses prayer to accomplish the, uh, his plan of redemption. A useful tool that I use, and you can write this down, is joshuaproject.net. joshuaproject.net. The Joshua Project uh, uh, divides up the world's population, which I think is like 8 billion people now, into different people groups. People groups, as they use it, are the, uh, the same population of people geographically located that share a similar culture and language. So the way that the Joshua Project breaks down these 8 billion people is there's 17,453 people groups. And they say of that 17,000, 7,398 are unreached, 
which is to say less than 2% of that population are evangelical Christians. It's kind of like a, a threshold point uh, that you need to reach in order for uh, indigenous missionary efforts to be self-sustaining. So if they're unreached, there's really no reasonable expectation that anyone in that people group will hear the gospel of Jesus. So praying to the Lord of the harvest, right, that, that we were uh, praying about earlier, that he would send laborers into the, into the field. Pray for that people. They have a different people group every day on their websites. You can just use that as a, as a way to pray in an informed way. And then lastly, my sixth idea is uh, show hospitality. Show hospitality. It's the same thing that you'd be doing on the mission field, which this is a mission field just like there. And you only export what you already are. And just as I've looked around Clemson, it seems like God has been bringing the nations here. Afghan refugees, international students, international uh, professional workers. They're here. What an opportunity. They came to you. Let's exploit that opportunity for the glory of God and for their joy, having them over into our homes. That's what uh, the Thessalonians did. That's what Paul did. It's through radical hospitality, having people over, sharing a meal, reading the Bible, articulating your testimony. It's not fancy, but it, it doesn't have to be. It's just relational. What a wonderful way to put on display a God who has invited us into his family, into his heavenly home. If he's done that for us, why wouldn't we do that for other people? God's invited us into his family through his son Jesus. We should do that here. And by the way, even as someone who's traveled to a bunch of different cultures, I can really affirm other cultures make it a point of pride to have people into their homes. So it's all, people are going to be very receptive coming from different parts of the world. If you ask to have them over into their homes, they're like, oh, this is like a taste of home for me from Algeria or from Iraq or from Jordan. Um, they're, they're, the pump is already primed, and so you can make use of that. But whether you go or whether you stay, the local church is the means by which God accomplishes his mission's plan in the world. Let me close with this quote from a book called One Sacred Effort. In 1792, William Carey insisted that British Baptists heed the Great Commission. There was a call for united effort to expand Baptist energies into the larger field of ministry more than Jerusalem and Judea. In order to do this, Carey knew he needed support from Baptist churches and individuals in England who were likewise committed to the evangelization of the world. He would need their prayers, but he'd also need their financial support. Together with Andrew Fuller, Carey organized the Baptist Missionary Society. Carey became one of the first to go to the foreign field, departing for India in 1793. The trip took five months, and it would be seven years before the first convert, Krishna Paul, would come to Christ through Carey's efforts. But Carey considered it all worth the cost, even though part of the cost would be the loss of his own wife. Carey and Andrew Fuller had an agreement. This is a famous quote. You'll probably recognize it. I will go down if you will hold the rope. I will go down if you hold the rope, Carey said to Fuller. Fuller held the rope, spending endless hours traveling England, raising support for the mission work. As the person's going down, there's two people holding that rope. Either way, we should have 
calluses on our hands, is how I've, put, I've, I've heard one missionary put it. Whether we're going or staying, we're all involved in the missions. And if I could just encourage us with one final word, the work is done. Jesus is already won. He said it on the cross. It is finished. He's already purchased everything that we need and given us the power of the Holy Spirit to do this great work. It's not on our own power. Right now, there are people who before the ages began, God chose them like he chose the Thessalonians, like he chose you. And we have the opportunity to go and tell the chosen about the good news. Cast the net wide for the sake of their joy, for the sake of your joy, and for the glory of God. Oh, may the Mount Church be about this mission work. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son. Father, we praise you that you have saved us. You, by the power of your Spirit, have caused us to turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. You've given us such joy to replace our sorrow. You've given us a new identity in your Son, Jesus. And you've set us on a commission to take this good news to the nations. Father, I pray that through this Missions Week at the Mount and for the rest of our lives, that we would take joy in the opportunity to share the good news, make disciples of all nations, and be church planting churches for your namesake. I pray this in Jesus' name.